Robert, listen, man, I'm trying to think back to the date when I first met you. We were both much younger men when I showed up in Waco, Texas. I think in 2011. I think that is correct. Robert Griffin III won the Heisman at Baylor and then got named NFL Rookie of the Year back when I was still writing stories about him for Sports Illustrated. I just remember that you had like a giant bag full of Dragon Ball Z action figures. That is true. And it's not just Dragon Ball Z, it's it's Dragon Ball and also Dragon Ball Super, Dragon Ball GT. You know, we're well diversified. So (laughs) yes, when I went to college, had a backpack with really all my action figures, you know, Goku, Vegeta, Trunks, Gohan, Piccolo, Majin Buu, Rysel. (laughs) And for my, my first couple semesters, I just sat in my room, studied the playbook, obviously went to workouts. And played with my action figures, man. <laughs> and, and to be quite honest with you, those action figures are still with me today. And my daughters go in there periodically and take a toy out that's probably 15, 16, 17 years old. And they have a blast with it around the house. So not going to change that about myself. But yes, that, I do have that bag of toys. <laughs> the thing I love about you that I'm now glad that people can appreciate is that you are one of the most high credibility nerds that I know. <laughs> And and for some reason, Robert, for some reason, I'm trying to think of why that never really came through in the scouting reports coming out of college. I don't know. I don't know. People missed that. <laughs> but I promise you, if I was uh, if I would if I didn't have melanin in my skin, uh, you know, this amount of melanin, then they probably <laughs> have brought that up a little bit more. Robert Griffin III contains multitudes. He knows more than me about anime. He sings. He posts memes. Lots of memes. And now he's my colleague at ESPN, calling games and talking football on television. But when he was doing his old job, NFL quarterback, he was part of a lineage that is culminating this Sunday in an unprecedented historical fact because two black quarterbacks are starting in the Super Bowl for the first time ever. And maybe you've heard about this. But today, RG3 explains what it actually means from the perspective of someone who lived some of that history, which isn't over yet. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, February 10th. And this is ESPN Daily. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. So, Robert, I had to look this up, but the year you won the Heisman and met me, 2011, only three black quarterbacks had ever started a Super Bowl at that point. And now, here we are, about 100 million people are about to watch Philadelphia start Jalen Hurts and Kansas City start Patrick Mahomes. And you've done this job. You've done arguably the signature most important job an athlete can have in America. You were the face of a franchise. 
And I imagine that you see this story in a pretty personal way. Yeah, I mean, honestly, in 2011, you know, we win the Heisman there at Baylor, something that no one thought was possible. He has time, launches it to the end zone. Touchdown! The Heisman race is wide open, and Robert Griffin III just put forth his resume. Going to 2012, win Rookie of the Year, help Washington uh, win the division. Here is RG3. He's going to run for the first down and still on his feet. RG3 is going to outrace everybody. Definitely thought at that point, if we flash forward, would have an opportunity to play and be one of those black quarterbacks playing in the Super Bowl. Now, my career didn't end up going that way. Uh, injuries, whatever else uh, happened along the, along the way. But to see these two young men in Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts now in this position uh, as the first black quarterbacks to go against each other in the Super Bowl, first time we've had two black quarterbacks playing in the Super Bowl ever is just truly astonishing. Um, when you think about everything that black quarterbacks have had to go through, uh, it's truly amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it feels like both a non-story on the most just like, look, no one should be shocked that this is the case. And yet it is so real the way in which this is fundamental. The story we're here to talk about is fundamental to the experience of every black quarterback that has ever played the game. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And I mean, you think about it. Uh, I think the the league was what created in 1920 and then integrated in 1946. Uh, and then we didn't have our first black starting quarterback in the modern era of the game until 1968 with Marlon Briscoe. And when you talk about black quarterbacks in the league, we didn't even have all 32 teams have a black starting quarterback until 2017. Mm. So... There's a lot of history in there that people want to overlook. And it's our job, it's our duty to make sure that they don't overlook that because it's, it really isn't about race in this situation. It's just about the fact that black quarterbacks have always, even today, right? The questioning of their leadership abilities, the questioning of their cognitive abilities. Can they read and process at a high level? And then always having to deal with you should be in a different position because you're so athletic. It's something I dealt with, obviously, coming up in high school and recruiting. And, and one of the guys in the Super Bowl with Jalen Hurts, when he was coming out, they said he should play wide receiver. Would you be willing to play a different position? Right I think I'm a quarterback. I've played it. That's, that's what I intend on working on and continue to play. It's just something that we've constantly had to deal with and overcome. And I'm happy that we're in a better place today but it's still not truly where it needs to be. Well, I want to be clear about your vantage point on this because you are not just a guy who wore the tag of athletic quarterback. You were literally one of the most talented, I mean, runners and hurdlers in college sports, okay? You were an Olympic-level hurdler at Baylor, uh, a decorated program. And you were also a guy who was really good at playing football as a quarterback. And so... That notion that you had to prove yourself, just for people who aren't familiar with your with your initiation into these stereotypes, what do you remember about first becoming a quarterback? Well, it started honestly on the playground. So I didn't play little league football. 
Um, a lot of my friends did. I, I asked my mom and dad, hey, can I, can I play Little League football? And they said, uh, no. Now, I didn't know that we didn't have enough money to play back then, but, you know, that's what she was telling me. So as we get on the playground, we're playing at recess. You know, I played wide receiver at first in fifth, sixth grade out at recess. And I realized that the quarterbacks could not throw the ball. Like, I'm running 60 yards down the field, and they're not throwing it there because they're fifth and sixth graders. <laughs> so one day at recess, I just said, you know what, I'm tired of running. I'm not running anymore. I'm going to play quarterback. And that was the beginning of my quarterback journey. So as I got into seventh grade and, and football became a, you know, a school sport, the coach at my junior high knew that I was a fast guy. And immediately I said, hey, can I play quarterback? He said, nope, you're, you're going to try out at wide receiver. Uh, we're going to try out at running back. And I said, coach, I, I really think I can, I can play quarterback. Like I've been doing it at recess. He's looking at me like recess. Come on, man. <laughs> um, so anyway, I did end up trying out at quarterback. And uh, won the starting job. First football game I ever played in, we won 60 to 6. I threw four touchdowns, ran for three touchdowns. And the coach that put me at quarterback from that point on was referred to as a genius. <laughs> That's how it goes. And then from that point on, I went to a, a high school, Copper Scope, Texas. A really good football team. Um, I was a multi-sport athlete. And my high school coach at that time preferred guys that only played football. So I didn't get a chance to start until I was a junior because of that. So when I did get a chance to start, we went to two state championships my junior and senior year, and the recruitment was all over the place. So you know, in talking with my parents, you know, we had known, you know, just because I was so athletic, everybody was going to want me to switch positions. So we just made a decision that any coach that came to talk to the high school coach, that I was a quarterback. Texas offered me as an athlete, and uh, they pulled the offer as soon as they gave it because in the coach's office, I told them, I, I appreciate the offer, coach, but I'm a quarterback. And they kind of looked at me and said, do you know who we are? It was like a, a, a Denzel Washington training day type of experience, you know? You think you can do this Jay! You think you can do this to me? So I, it was tough, but I had to turn down some of those offers. A&M offered me as a safety. Texas offered me as an athlete. LSU, which was my, my family's from New Orleans. LSU is a huge school that I was like, man, I would love to go to Baton Rouge. They offered me as a wide receiver. And then after my senior year, came back and offered me as a quarterback. But I already knew how that game goes. Yep. They offer you as a receiver at first. They want you to be a receiver. So... I did end up getting over 30 offers, a quarterback from big time schools, and uh, ultimately decided to commit to Houston, where our browse was at, because I wanted to play multiple sports and I didn't love football at the time. And then obviously, Art went to uh, Baylor and uh, I decided to go with him, picked Baylor over Stanford and Oregon at the time. So I had the big offers, but my drive to be a quarterback and play early led me to Baylor. Yeah, and I want to set this sort of moment in time because you were born in 1990, right? And this is just a couple of years after Doug Williams famously had his Super Bowl run with Washington. And so the notion that this was possible, the notion that you guys had a plan, that you had already the expectation, look, they're going to try to make you into an athlete, which is a, a compliment and also just a very naked euphemism. 
Correct. Right? Explain how obvious this was just in general and not just for you. It was very obvious. And, and like the easiest way I can do it, like we're creatures of habit, right? The way we think and comparison. So myself and Andrew Luck, we've been tied our entire careers, right? Yes. From high school through college, all the way into the pros. Andrew Luck was uh, competing out of Houston, right? So I, I knew about Andrew. Andrew knew about me. Uh, Andrew's a very athletic guy. Yes. You could look at him and you could be like, you know what? He looks like a tight end. But Andrew Luck never had to deal with, hey, let's switch your position. In college and high school, me and Andrew, our stats, our numbers, everything were eerily similar. And, and when you look at us as athletes, you're like, man, that guy's he's a good athlete and he's a, he's a good quarterback. He's a great quarterback. But Andrew never had to deal with some of the stuff that I did of switching positions. School's coming to me and not going to him and saying, hey, we want to switch you to this, we want to switch you to that. For instance, at Stanford, you know who my host was? No. Richard Sherman was my host at Stanford. Mm. Now, people might forget, but Richard played wide receiver at Stanford before he switched over to corner. Right. So when he was my host, he was actually a wide receiver. In that moment, I knew, hey, if I don't beat out Andrew in this quarterback competition, I'm going to be playing another position. And a lot of the quarterbacks that had to deal with that, that look like me, that are African-American and athletic, there's always a fallback plan. Hey, we're going to bring him in as a QB, but if it doesn't work out, he can certainly play this other position because his athleticism plays to that. So there's always like this contingency plan to move us somewhere as opposed to let us grind it out. Let us figure out how to get it done because we can get it done. Now, when you think about the way the game has evolved, right? Jalen Hurts and, and Patrick Mahomes, I've said this multiple times over the past few weeks, they're the new prototypical NFL quarterback. They beat you with their arm, they beat you with their legs, they beat you with their mind. That's what you want. But there's guys that have been doing that for quite some time, whether it was Michael Vick or Randall Cunningham or Doug Williams, as you mentioned. There was this connotation that they couldn't get done with their brain. Mm -hmm. And the first starting black quarterback was Marlon Briscoe in 68. But he only started because the starter got hurt and the backups weren't playing well. He was a quarterback that set records at the college that he went to in Omaha. But they moved him to corner when he got into the NFL. Then he starts, sets a rookie record for touchdowns with 14 in 1968. Never starts another game at quarterback. Mm actually gets moved to wide receiver and becomes an all-pro wide receiver. So I, I, when I'm thinking of that history, it's like, why would African-American or black quarterbacks, however you want to refer to us, not be, be looked at as the face of a franchise? Well, the civil rights movement was from 54 to 68. So you're telling me you're going to put a black quarterback and make him the face of your franchise when it's the most divisive issue in all of America at the time? The NFL is always about protecting the shield. It's always been about putting in front of the people what they think they want to consume. They mm -hmm. were never going to do that at that time. But people tend to forget that. And that's why for the black quarterback, it's been such a tumultuous battle to get to this point. Well, the crazy, I mean, look, there are so many crazy parts of the history that you just outlined. But one of the craziest, of course, is that there are a couple of things I always assumed about the NFL to be true. Um, not simply that they're trying to market the game and sell it to people who they think they know what they want, but also that everybody is so cutthroat and hyper-competitive. They are self-interested. And what you're describing 
is how they got in the way of their own self-interest as a team that wanted to, you know, have the best players. Correct. And if you look at the history of the league compared to, to what was going on at the time, you have a better understanding of why it happened. Doesn't mean it's right. It wasn't right at all. But at the same time, they weren't going to make the black quarterbacks the face of the franchise. No. They weren't going to allow that athleticism to be at a position that was coveted to be white at the time. So when I look at it now, I think back to high school. When you watch high school football, for all the high school football fans out there, who is that quarterback? It's usually the best athlete on the team. Mm. And now it's almost as if the NFL has caught up to what high schools have been doing for generations, right? Defensive linemen are getting bigger, faster, and stronger. You've seen like an epidemic at the offensive line position where it's really hard to find guys to block these these guys out there. So now they're like, all right, okay, well, they've been doing this in high school for, for a long time. Let's just take the best athlete, put them at quarterback. Teach them how to throw, teach them how to do all these things. Now you got all these quarterback coaches and, and all these specialized guys that can help them learn how to read defenses and do this different stuff. But the NFL game is so far behind from the high school game because all those best athletes from many generations were just taken and moved to different positions. Now they're not doing that anymore because they need a guy like Jalen Hurts who can run around and break tackles and be strong in the pocket. They need a guy like Patrick Mahomes who can be creative. The drop back pass, so I'm not saying the drop back passer is dead, but you don't see very many Peyton Mannings and Eli Mannings and Tom Brady's coming to the league anymore. So after the break, how the current wave of quarterbacks that you do see coming into the league have changed this job now and probably forever. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Picture this. You arrive at your hotel. You have an important online meeting lined up with clients from all across the country. You have your laptop open, ready to begin, and the Wi-Fi is so terrible you can't even connect. These type of stressful situations happen all the time, but they don't have to. When you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you have access to their free high-speed Wi-Fi. So you can take care of those critical emails, join your meetings on time, and even unwind by streaming your favorite shows without having to worry. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. So, Robert, it's worth noting here that NFL teams, NFL decision makers, they've made an almost poetically stupid mistake in overthinking the thinking man's position here. Right? Because if the logic of giving the best athlete the ball as quickly as possible and as often as possible was more of the norm in high school and in college, because that is how you would win games, it does feel all the more insane that all of these talent evaluators at the very highest level prioritize doing something else at quarterback. 
Correct. And, and, and to piggyback off your point, it, it, the percentage of players in the NFL, I think it's either 69 or 70% of the NFL is black. Why did it take till 2023 for there to be a matchup of two black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl? Well, you could say happenstance. You could say, hey, it's because it's just the way the numbers rolled out. But we've seen a, a surgence of black quarterbacks coming into the league over the last 10 years now because they realize that we need to stop trying to figure out what these guys can't do and put them in positions to be successful. Yeah. It's not that they need a black quarterback to go be successful. They just need the qualities and characteristics that black quarterbacks have traditionally had, right? Randall Cunningham was an outlier at the time. Michael Vick was an outlier at the time. That's how they were viewed. Oh, well, he can do that, but the rest of these guys can't do it. And for generations upon generations, they, they prevented themselves from having stars like a Patrick Mahomes, like a Jalen Hurts, like a Lamar Jackson, you know? And for me, honestly, to watch it all come to fruition and see how it's, how it's going after knowing the history, I am proud of where we are today. But I know that there's so many other kids out there that are going to see those two guys in the Super Bowl and know, man, I actually have a shot now when they didn't feel like they had that before. What are, your, what, are, what are some of your favorites? And by favorite, I mean the ones that you can laugh at now, but the euphemisms, the coded language that covered, attempted to cover all of the stuff that you're describing, which are fundamentally racist stereotypes. I, I do, I've done the draft the past two years. Yes. Right? Last year for ESPN, the year before, I did it for Bleacher Report. And if you see a, a, a black quarterback, it's always... Man, he can make all the plays with his arm and, and with his legs. He's real creative. You know, look at this. Look at the arm talent. They never shy away from the arm talent. It's never, man, he's cerebral. Mm. He's, he's the first one in, last one out. When you talk about Jalen Hurts, his dad's a high school coach, right? But I don't ever feel like I heard anyone talk about how Jalen Hurts He's a coach's kid. A coach's kid. You know, yeah. he's, he's been around the game. Like, okay, well, if, if African-American black players weren't allowed to play in the NFL till 1940, uh, uh, 46, they, they wouldn't have an opportunity to be around the game. So when I, when I see just a comparison between myself and Andrew Luck again, uh, it was Andrew Luck's cerebral. Robert Griffin III has a higher ceiling. Mm. He has a higher ceiling. He has more potential because of his athleticism. It's like, okay, well, you're just saying that I'm athletic and he's smart. So are you saying that I'm dumb? But look at my career and see how I significantly got better every single year. That involves reading defenses. That involves being cerebral. That involves breaking the game down. But then when I started to struggle in the NFL, the number one go-to was... He can't read defenses. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. I fought that for a long time in my own head. Like, how are you telling me I can't read a defense? Because I made a mistake. Guys make mistakes every single game. So why is it that as soon as a black quarterback, myself in particular, makes a mistake, it's all of a sudden I'm not smart enough to get the job done? No, it sounds like a lot of this is about the patterns of assumptions that professional evaluators make, consciously or subconsciously, by the way. It, it's the game of who does this human being remind me of? And I'm reminded now that 
you come from a military family, correct? Like your parents were literally sergeants in the U.S. Army. But I also don't think I ever heard you get labeled as gritty or tough even. Never. Never. <laughs> They'll never sit there and say, man, this guy's, he's got some toughness. Right. I was honestly was waiting for the story to come out when I was going through the draft process of 2009. I tore my ACL on the first drive of the fourth game of the year. I ended up playing the entire first half through four touchdowns or three touchdowns, something like that. Got us to a big lead where we're up like 42 to nothing or seven. And I was waiting for that story to come out so they could say, he puts it on the line for his teammates. That story never surfaced. No. All they talked about was my athleticism. That was all they talked about. And those are the terms that I try to stay away from. I don't, if I, if I see a guy like Brock Purdy, Max Duggan, no, I'm not going to sit there and say he's sneaky athletic. No. Calling him sneaky athletic is the same as calling him white. Yes, absolutely. So I, I never get into that stuff, but you're right. There are terms that have been reserved for a certain section of people that kind of use that coded language, and we have to get away from that. Well, the game getting away from it, that's where I want to go next, because on some level, I bet there are people who listen to conversations like this, and they think to themselves, wait a minute, you guys, like, we, the royal we, uh, football fans, are paying compliments like you should you should like being called creative, really good off schedule, right? And I, I notice it too, even with Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> who Robert, you gotta explain this for people who don't watch the tape as closely as you do. But when you see Patrick Mahomes get the label of improviser, and of course he is that to the extreme, but without the recognition that in the pocket he is also what? How would you clarify this dynamic? Oh, he's, he's the best in the NFL. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the NFL operating in the pocket. We had some colleagues of ours, right, that went down the road of trying to parse out a, a specific section of quarterbacking for Joe Burrow. Hey, Joe Burrow sees it and he operates and he does the things that a quarterback is supposed to do better than anyone else. He's, he's the best quarterback at quarterbacking. That makes no sense mm. because everything you do as a quarterback is part of quarterback. Improvisation used to be something that was looked down upon. Hey, this guy improvises too much. Coaches want to be able to control the quarterback and know that he's going to go one to two to three or one to four to five based off the coverage. But if this guy's going one to two and then he's out there getting jiggy with it in the open field, I don't know what to do. Well, Patrick Mahomes can do all of those things. Mm -hmm. He can go one through five and then get out in the open field, improvise, get jiggy with it, flip it behind his back or run for a first down, whatever it may be. All of that is a part of quarterbacking. So I find it hilarious that from 1968 to 2023, improvisation is bad. But now that's all they want. So for Patrick Mahomes to be, I think he's number one in QBR out of the pocket. He's got the most touchdowns thrown out of the pocket. He's number one in all these categories that have to do with pocket passing. Yet we're still trying to take that away from him and say, oh, he's the best improviser. He's the greatest talent at quarterback. But he's not the best quarterback at quarterbacking. <laughs> Come on, guys. Even Joe Burrow is a, a more qualified runner than 
Peyton Manning ever was, than Tom Brady ever has. Absolutely. Because Burrow understands. One, he knows who he's got blocking in front of him. But two, he has to use his legs so that he can be a pocket passer. And I think that's kind of the general misconception right now. Patrick Mahomes is the best quarterback in the league. He does everything better than everyone except for running, which is I reserve for Lamar Jackson because Lamar Jackson's on a whole nother level well, when it comes to running the ball. Lamar, man, I, I look this offseason. We're gonna we're it's funny, like you open up this story and you realize that every storyline and trope is in here. And look, you played with Lamar in Baltimore, right? You were in the position of Wisen Vet backing up a guy who was, you know, and I need you to explain this part too. But what he is is yeah. still misunderstood. Correct. How would you explain what Lamar Jackson is, having again played alongside him? When it comes to uh, just pure talent, Lamar Jackson is the most talented player in the NFL. I mean, just pure talent. Not even talking about quarterbacking. The dude is unbelievable. Now, quarterback-wise, he's a top-five quarterback in the NFL. Because, like I said, everything you do is part of your quarterbacking. Lamar Jackson, when I say he, he's the best runner in the NFL, like Justin Fields had a phenomenal year running the ball. Didn't even touch what Lamar Jackson has done. You put Fields' highlight reel up, up against Lamar Jackson's, it's not even close. This, the spin move he pulled off against the Bengals like two years ago. Jackson takes it himself. Look at him turn back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankles. Now he's got an entourage and he's got a touchdown. He is Houdini. What a play by the magical quarterback, Lamar Jackson. My jaw is still on the ground. The most incredible run I've ever seen. But Lamar Jackson also led the NFL in touchdown passes. So when we're talking about Lamar as a runner, he's a quarterback. His running is part of his game. That's part of his quarterbacking. We kind of get trapped in this uh, ideal that quarterbacking has to be done a certain way, and it doesn't. Jalen Hurts is not in the Super Bowl right now because he just threw for 400 yards a game. And, and, he, and he threw for four touchdowns a game. Some games, Jalen Hurts threw for 100 yards, and he ran for 100 yards. Some games, he threw for 300 yards and ran for no yards or 20 yards. It's all a part of the quarterbacking position, and we got to get away from these traditional measuring sticks because the game has evolved. Well, you know, that's the kind of amazing thing when we talk about the ways in which we mark progress. And this is a milestone, and so we're doing it. But it almost feels like as persuasive as this is, as a piece of evidence, even more persuasive is something you've sort of been alluding to this entire time, which is what's it going to be like when you're mediocre and a black quarterback? Right. Do you get the treatment that you would if you were white? When I was growing up as a six, seven, eight-year-old, not really thinking about football, my parents, they sat me down and they had the conversation that you've probably heard a lot of uh, black players or athletes said their parents had with them. And it's, you got to work twice as hard. You got to be three times as smart. You know, you have to show 10 times more effort because they're not going to pick you if you're mediocre, specifically in leadership positions. Yes. To be the face of the team, the point guard, to be the quarterback. In those leadership positions, they're like, nah, he can't do it because he, he can't rally the guys. He doesn't have the, the brain power to get that done. 
Well, it's a political job is what we're really circling around here is that this is not like any, it's truly unlike any other position in sports. Yep. Let's just be honest about that. This is the job that is most like CEO, the job that is most like running for office yeah. because not only are you the avatar for the coach, but you're the avatar for the fan base and you are this guy who has to stand behind a podium and make people feel like the product that they were, you know, supposed to want to buy. The league is 69, 70% black, but its fan base is not. So what they are presenting to their fan base, they're still thinking about that. Mm. Even if it's not overt and they're, they're coming out and saying, hey, we can't put that black guy in front of our, our white fan base. They might not say that, but it's been drilled into them for such a long time that it still becomes a problem in that process of selecting a quarterback. That's why we see guys that get drafted before a player and you're like, how is that even possible that they would go draft this guy before this African-American quarterback who is clearly better? And, and look, I'm not alleging here that there is this cabal of NFL decision makers who are explicitly saying out loud, we cannot have a black guy doing this job here. But it does feel to to invert one stereotype here, um, noticeably lazy. Like they're not actually thinking enough about the ways that these stereotypes still seep in and they seep in everywhere. It's to the point where legitimately mobile quarterbacks like Josh Allen, like Trevor Lawrence, they also get labeled super lazily as well. You know, we're talking about all these all these quarterbacks and, and like Daniel Jones is a quarterback that I was I was impressed with this year. He had career highs in almost every category of his of his playing career. But Daniel Jones is probably one of the most athletic quarterbacks we have in this game. Oh, no doubt. Right? But you never hear anybody talk about it. They say, oh, he's sneaky athletic or they don't talk about it at all. And I do think that has to do with his skin color. I feel like if Daniel Jones was black. You would hear it all the time. Right. Daniel Jones had more rushing yards than every other quarterback in the NFL, except for Justin Fields. <laughs> right. But you never heard about it that way. And, of and course that, not. And that's to your point, Pablo. It's like, don't just reserve the athleticism for the black guys. Like, just treat everybody equally. If the guy's athletic, he's athletic. Talk about how athletic he is. Yes. Justice for Daniel Jones. This is this is how we fulfill the vision of a post-racial NFL coalition. Uh Seriously, at the end here, Robert, I mean, look, this is 56 Super Bowls now in our rearview mirror. We're about to watch two of the best quarterbacks in the league straight up. How are you feeling as, as Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes, as their true power levels seem to have both been encouraged and finally unlocked? I'm, I'm happy that the game has evolved to the point that it is now where where coaches are are starting to truly build their system around what their quarterback does best. That that's the biggest tip of the cap I could give to Andy Reid and Nick Sirianni is they built their systems uh, around what their quarterbacks do best. They allow Patrick Mahomes to be himself, operate in the pocket, be creative, but Sirianni truly bought into Jalen Hurts and allowed him to be the RPO get it done with his legs when he has to, throw the ball deep type of quarterback, and he trusted him. Uh, it's hard to understand what you don't know about, right? So people are always more comfortable with people who look like them, people who come from their background. And I think that's kind of what the what has happened to black quarterbacks over the years. 
it's much easier for a white coach to identify and know how to handle, coach, talk to, share lived experiences with a white quarterback than it is for him to identify with a black quarterback. It's harder for them to identify with what that individual has had to go through for the entirety of their lives. Teams and people have to just accept that for what it is. It's okay. There might be a player out there who doesn't look like you, who doesn't come from the same background as you, but is worthy of the same opportunity that you would give someone that does look like you, that does come from the same background as you do. I think that's a place that we have to get to. It doesn't mean you just force feed it, but you have to be at least open to it. And I think now we're seeing that with two black quarterbacks in the Super Bowl for the first time. The extraordinarily gritty Robert Griffin III, thank you so much for joining us, man. Appreciate you, brother. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Antel, Mike Philbrick, Andre Soto, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Deontay Epps, Kendall Majette, Reed Dickerson, and Jackson Angelo. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs>